Today on Legalese, we have another Supreme Court Roundup Chevron Deference Edition. Hey, greetings and welcome back to the show. My name is Bob. I am your host. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Uh, especially if you are new to the program, I would like to welcome you. Uh, this is a podcast where we're mostly going to be uh, discussing current events in law, politics, and culture. Uh, now, real quick, you can find us on a number of different platforms. We're available in video on uh, YouTube, Rumble, uh, Odyssey, uh, Spotify. We're available in audio on Apple Podcasts and Anchor. Uh, and you can join the Illegalese community over on Locals.com. And you can do all of those awesome things and read articles that I put out, mostly about issues of constitutional law, over on my Substack page. You can find links to all of those down in the description. So, we have a lot going on with the Supreme Court today. Now, of course, uh, Justice Breyer is uh, now retired from the bench. Uh, He will be sorely missed by me for no other reason than I always absolutely loved listening to oral arguments to see how many times Justice Breyer could go on one of his strange 10-minute paradoxian garden path sentence rambling multifaceted questions that aren't actually a question. Uh, those were just great. And I, I also, I really think people underestimate how influential this guy has been in his time on the bench. The perfect example is DC versus Heller. If you look at how the lower courts applied D.C. versus Heller to gun rights in the decade following that case, they did not apply Justice Scalia's majority opinion that it was an individual right to own a gun for self-defense unconnected to service in the militia. They also didn't apply Justice Stevens, who had the controlling dissent that found that it was an individual right, but only for people serving in the militia and for no other lawful purpose. No, instead... They applied Justice Breyer's lone dissent that said we should keep all gun laws in place just as they are as a kind of interest-balancing approach that was clearly a call for rational basis review that he didn't refer to as rational basis review because he knew that this was a clearly enumerated right in the Constitution and that rational basis review would have been entirely inappropriate standard of judicial scrutiny for the protection of that right. So he argued for rational basis review while calling it an interest-balancing approach. And this is exactly how the lower courts proceeded to interpret the Second Amendment in the years following Heller. And also, of course, we now have on the bench uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Congratulations, Justice Jackson, for taking your seat on the high court. Uh, I'm sure that... uh, you will be a never-ending frustration to constitutional originalists and statutory textualists like myself, uh, but that shouldn't diminish what is indeed a great accomplishment on your part. Uh, I have no doubt you will be very much, uh, as Breyer was, a most worthy adversary. All right, now to the main uh, topic, topic for today. So, back in... 2017, when it was announced that Neil Gorsuch was going to be the judge replacing uh, Justice Scalia on the court, I was really overjoyed for two reasons. The first was that, like Scalia, he had a pretty solid judicial record as a constitutional originalist and a statutory textualist. However, 
Unlike Scalia, Gorsuch was an outspoken critic of a somewhat esoteric but incredibly important legal doctrine known as Chevron deference. Now, Chevron deference plainly stated says that an administrative agency's interpretation of an ambiguous statute must be uh, permissible and is thus owed judicial deference as long as that interpretation is held to be rational or reasonable. Now, for a more uh, complete uh, definition of the term, I guess, we can turn to uh, Cornell Law. They say that Chevron deference is one of the most important principles in administrative law. Chevron deference is a term coined after the landmark case Chevron USA Incorporated versus National Resource Defense Council Incorporated, a 1984 case. And they say referring to the doctrine of judicial deference given to administrative actions in Chevron, the Supreme Court set forth a legal test as to when the court should defer to an agency's answer or interpretation Holding that such a judicial deference is appropriate where the agency's answer was not unreasonable so long as Congress had not spoken directly to the precise issue at question. The scope of Chevron deference doctrine is that when a legislative delegation to the administrative agency on a particular issue or question is not explicit but rather implicit, a court may not substitute its own interpretation of the statute for a reasonable interpretation made by that administrative agency. Rather, as Justice Stevens wrote in Chevron, when the statute is silent or ambiguous with respect to the specific issue, the question for the court is whether the agency's action was based on a permissible construction of the statute. Now, the problem with it is that while that may not sound like a terribly unreasonable doctrine prima facie, uh, a good example of how absurd uh, this deference to an agency's own judgment has become, Chevron deference was what the ATF turned to when they justified their bump stock ban in 2019 by simply declaring a gun stock is a machine gun. Now, just this month, the court has decided on two cases that have struck a blow to this ridiculous doctrine. So today, uh, the Supreme Court decided uh, West Virginia versus the Environmental Protection Agency, and Chief Justice Roberts wrote the opinion for the court rejecting claims that the case was non-justiciable and concluding that the EPA lacks broad authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from power plants under the Clean Air Act relying on the major questions doctrine. The Chief Justice explained that Section 111 of the Clean Air Act does not allow the EPA to require generation shifting, which is the replacement of coal with renewable energy, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Now, the Chief Justice's opinion for the court was joined by the court's conservatives. Justice Gorsuch has a concurring opinion joined by Justice Alito, and Justice Kagan wrote for the dissent on behalf of herself and the other liberal justices. And I want to thank a friend of the show, Blue North Wind, for reminding me uh, about this first case here that we are going to be talking about. Uh, cause I had gotten so wrapped up in Dobbs and Bruin 
it was kind of like I forgot that there were other important cases yet to come out. Uh, and she reminded me of that uh, when she wrote to me mentioning this case, so thank you very much. Now, anyways, back to the case. As a threshold matter, the Chief Justice explained that the case is justiciable, even though the EPA is not currently enforcing greenhouse gas limits under Section 111, this is because the question on appeal is whether the petitioners experience an inquiry that is fairly traceable to the judgment below. Further, the government's stated intention to adopt new rules does not moot the case. Now, of course, Justice Kagan conceded that the court had jurisdiction to decide the case and that it is not moot for purposes of Article 3, but she makes clear that she wishes the court had declined to hear the case on purely prudential grounds. However, on the merits, here is how the Chief Justice frames the issues in the case. He says, The Clean Air Act authorizes the Environmental Protection Agency to regulate power plants by setting a standard of performance for their emission of certain pollutions into the air, uh, 84 Statute 1683 and 42 U.S.C. Section 7411, Subsection A1. Those don't really matter in particular. I'll put links to those particular statutes down in the description, but uh, what those say really don't matter a whole lot for understanding this case. Anyway, so that standard may be different for new and existing plants, but in each case, it must reflect the best system of emission reduction, that the agency has determined to be adequately demonstrated for the particular category uh, under Section 7411, subsection A1, B1, and D, and for existing plants, the states then implement that requirement by issuing rules restricting emissions from sources within their borders. The decision goes on to say that since passage of the Act 50 years ago, the EPA has exercised its authority by setting performance standards based on measures that would reduce pollution by causing plants to operate more cleanly. In 2015, however, EPA issued a new rule concluding that the best system of emission reduction for existing coal-fired power plants, including a requirement for such facilities reducing their own production of electricity, or subsidize increased generation by natural gas, wind, or solar sources. The question before us is whether this broader conception of the EPA's authority is within the power granted to it by the Clean Air Act. So, as already noted, the Chief Justice explained that the EPA does not have such authority. Whatever authority the EPA has to mandate that utilities adopt the best system of emissions reduction that has been adequately demonstrated, it does not extend to what the Obama administration had proposed for the Clean Air Plan and the D.C. Circuit had initially embraced in this case, which is basing emissions limits on this generation shifting. Now, of particular importance, Chief Justice Roberts stresses, uh, is that this conclusion was driven by recognition that in extraordinary cases, uh, cases in which the history and the breadth of the authority that the agency has asserted and the economic and political significance of that assertion call for a different approach and provide a reason to hesitate before concluding that Congress meant to confer such authority. 
in such words, even if one might conclude that the EPA's preferred interpretation of Section 111 is reasonable, the major questions doctrine counsels a narrower construction of the EPA's authority, as he writes, In extraordinary cases, both separation of powers principles and a practical understanding of legislative intent make us reluctant to read into ambiguous statutory text the delegation claimed to be lurking there. This is according to uh, regulations under Utility Air 53 U.S. at page 324. That, again, that's just another uh, citation to a regulation. What it says is not terribly important, but I'll put a link to it uh, down in the description if you want to go read about it. But to convince us otherwise, he says, something more than a merely plausible textual basis for the agency's action is necessary. The agency instead must point to clear congressional authorization for the power it claims. Now, after pointing out that there's nothing particularly new about this approach, the Chief Justice applies these principles to Section 111. He says, our precedent counsels skepticism towards the EPA's claim that Section 111 empowers it to devise carbon emission caps based on the generation-shifting approach. To overcome that skepticism, the government must, under the Major Questions Doctrine, point to a clear congressional authorization to regulate in that manner. All the government can offer, however, is the agency's authority to establish emission caps at a level reflecting, quote, the application of the best system of emission reduction adequately demonstrated, end quote. And that is according to 42 U.S.C. Section 7411, subsection A1, as a matter of definitional possibilities, uh, and that is set in precedent in FCC versus AT&T, a 2011 case. He goes on to say that generation shifting can be described as a system, an aggregation or assemblage of objects united for some form of regular interaction. In a brief for the federal respondents, uh, capable of reducing emissions, but of course, almost anything could constitute such a system. Short of all context, the word is an empty vessel. Such a vague statutory grant is not close to the sort of clear authorization required by our precedents. Now, importantly, the Chief Justice also goes out of his way to make clear that the court is not endorsing the constrained interpretation of Section 111 that was embraced by the Trump administration and urged by some petitioners. He said, we have no occasion to decide whether the statutory phrase system of emission reduction refers exclusively to measures that improve the pollution performance to individual sources such that all other actions are ineligible to qualify as the BSER. To be sure, it is pertinent to our analysis that EPA has acted consistent with such limitations for the first four decades of the statute's existence. But the only interpretive question before us, and the only one we answer, is more narrow. Whether the best system of emission reduction identified by EPA in the Clean Power Plan was within the authority granted to the Asian agency in Section 111, Subsection D of the Clean Air Act. For the reasons given, the answer is no. Now here, the chief goes on to conclude, 
capping carbon dioxide emissions at a level that will force a nationwide transition away from the use of coal to generate electricity may be a sensible solution to the crisis of the day. That is according to New York v. United States. But it is not plausible that Congress gave EPA the authority to adopt its own such a regulatory scheme in Section 111, Subsection D. A decision of such magnitude and consequence rests with Congress itself or an agency acting pursuant to a clear delegation from that representative body. The judgment of the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit is reversed. The cases are remanded for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. So this decision is a very important one. It expressly embraces and solidifies the major questions doctrine uh, and reaffirms the notion that federal courts should be reluctant to allow administrative agencies to pour new wine from old bottles. The decision also makes clear that the APA does not have a broad, free-ranging authority to address climate change under the Clean Air Act. This really is also a warning for other federal agencies, including the FERC and the SEC, and it makes clear that if the federal government is going to take meaningful action to mitigate the threat of climate change, as it should, this action will have to come from Congress. It also underscores uh, a point that has been made for some time about the risk of trying to address climate change through administrative regulation. Now, I will have more to say uh, about the majority opinion and Justice Gorsuch's concurrence and probably Elena Kagan's dissent as well and the broader implications for the administrative state in a future video. But today, I just want to get this out pretty quick here, and now I want to move on to another case that came uh, just about two weeks ago now that the Supreme Court handed down another opinion. There was also a case that wound up uh, limiting Chevron deference, though this one was decided without uh, being explicitly labeled a Chevron deference case. This was a case the court decided known as American Health Association versus Becerra. And they unanimously rejected reimbursement rates for certain pre prescription drugs set by the Department of Health and Human Services in 2018 and 2019 as contrary to statute. AHA was a closely watched case because some saw it as an opportunity for the court to revisit and to potentially narrow or even overturn the Chevron Doctrine under which courts are to defer to agency interpretation of ambiguous statutory provisions. Yet, the court ultimately chose to resolve this case without citing Chevron at all. Uh, and this should send a message to the lower courts about how more carefully Chevron should be applied. So, in the case, in AHA, the court has accepted on their grant of cert two questions. First, whether Chevron deference permits HHS to set reimbursement rates on acquisition costs and, uh, and vary such rates by hospital group if it has not collected adequate hospital acquisition cost survey data. 
And second, whether petitioner sued challenging HHS's adjustment is precluded by 42 U.S.C. section 1395L subsection T, uh, which is just a provision under uh, the Medicare uh, federal statutes that talks about uh, payment of benefits. That's it. It's, it. Again, these particulars is really not terribly important here. Now, in the unanimous opinion written by Justice Kavanaugh, the court answered both questions in the negative. The suit challenging the reimbursement rates was not precluded, and HHS may not vary reimbursement rates by hospital groups without having first collected survey data, but never once mentioned Chevron. So what exactly happened? Well, the court actually, without mentioning it, applied Chevron rigorously. So the Chevron Doctrine has two steps. First, always, is to examine the relevant statutory text to see if the statute is clear and answers the questions at issue. If the statute is clear, the statute controls. If, however, the statute is ambiguous on the question at issue, and here, it was whether the HHS may vary reimbursement rates by hospital group in the absence of survey data. Courts are to defer to a reasonable agency interpretation of the statutory language. Now, as articulated by the court, these are separate steps and an agency's interpretation of the statute is only relevant if the court first concludes that the statutory text is ambiguous and is ambiguous on the question at hand. Further, as the court has emphasized in recent opinions, uh, this initial inquiry should be a serious one in which courts are to apply all the traditional tools of statutory interpretation to see whether Congress has answered the issue. So in AHA, the court never had cause to consider whether HHS had offered a reasonable interpretation of the relevant statutory language because it resolved the case at step one simply by interpreting the statutory text. So as Justice Kavanaugh concluded in his opinion, after employing the traditional tools of statutory interpretation, we do not agree with HHS's interpretation of the statute. We conclude that Absent a survey of hospitals' acquisition costs, HHS may not vary the reimbursement rates for 340B hospitals. HHS's 2018 and 2019 reimbursement rates for such 340B hospitals are therefore contrary to the statute and unlawful. And so, essentially, what they are saying here is no deference was due to the agency because there was no ambiguity in the statute. And because there was no ambiguity, there was no reason to even raise the question of Chevron deference. Rather, the court just applied the statute as written. So, in other words, uh, what was styled as a Chevron case was more of a straightforward statutory interpretation. So Justice Kavanaugh's approach to Chevron in AHA stands in marked contrast to how the case was handled uh, below by the lower courts uh, with Chief, Chief Judge uh, Sri Nivasan, I believe it's pronounced, of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, who wrote the majority opinion for the case, and his approach to Chevron was very different. What he wrote was, 
on that issue of statutory interpretation, HHS is entitled to Chevron deference, which it has invoked here. Under Chevron, we first asked whether Congress has directly spoken to the precise question at issue. And this is according to Chevron 467 U.S. at 842. That, again, not really important. But here, the precise question at issue is whether HHS's adjustment authority in subclause 2 encompasses a reduction in SCOD reimbursement rates aimed at bringing reimbursement to 340B hospitals into line with their actual cost to acquire the drugs. If the statute does not directly foreclose HHS's understanding, we defer to the agency's reasonable interpretation. We conclude that HHS's interpretation of subclause 2 is not directly foreclosed and is therefore reasonable. So although repeating this canonical Chevron formulation, the D.C. Circuit Court did not first focus on whether the statutory language provided a clear answer to the question of whether HHS could vary reimbursement rates. Rather, he asked whether the statute directly foreclosed HHS's understanding and finding no such direct prohibition on HHS's preferred approach, he deferred to the agency. So the difference here between how the D.C. Circuit and how the Supreme Court handled Chevron is subtle, but very important. This is all about how the Chevron inquiry is framed, and how one orders and conceives the steps, and this, obviously, as we will see, greatly can affect the outcome. So, given the complexity of regulatory statutes, if a court adopts the view that any reasonable agency's interpretation that is not directly foreclosed, as the D.C. Circuit Court said, by the statute will be upheld, the dice are loaded in the agency's favor. If, on the other hand, the court first looks directly at the statute and utilizes all of the traditional tools of statutory interpretation to determine whether the statute answers the question, agencies will prevail much less often as they will never get the opportunity to present their position as a reasonable interpretation of the statute. And another problem with the D.C. Circuit opinion, uh, in my opinion, uh, is that it adopted an improper baseline for evaluating agency authority. Rather than looking to see whether the statute authorized HHS to vary reimbursement rates, it looked to see whether the statute expressly barred HHS opting to vary reimbursement rates by hospital group without the benefit of survey data. Now, because litigation will often involve questions that may not have been anticipated by a statute's drafters, we here again see how where one starts the inquiry may determine the outcome. In the absence of any explicit language saying HHS may or may not vary reimbursement rates in absence of survey data, whichever question is posed, did Congress authorize or did it prohibit? And this will be answered in the negative. Therefore, the question posed determines the answer. So, just as Justice Kavanaugh was correct to set HHS's interpretation aside and first interpret the relevant statutory text, 
Justice Kavanaugh was also correct to recognize what he was looking at for the statutory language authorizing HHS's approach rather than language precluding HHS's approach. So, after all, federal administrative agencies only have authority delegated to them by statute. And the failure to delegate authority is just that, a failure to delegate authority. Accordingly, Justice Kavanaugh wrote, Regardless of the scope of HHS's authority to adjust the average price up or down under the statute, the statute does not grant HHS authority to vary the reimbursement rates by hospital groups unless they have conducted the required survey of hospital acquisition costs. Under the statute, varying a rate by hospital group is not a lesser included power of adjusting price. Otherwise stated, HHS's power to increase or decrease the price is distinct from its power to set different rates for different groups of hospitals. So given that AHA never mentions Chevron, some might not think of it as a meaningful Chevron deference case. Now, I I suppose in one sense that interpretation is plausible, but for the reasons I have just given, I I think it would be a mistake to view it that way. Rather, AHA reinforces a message that the court has been giving for several years now. The first task of of a reviewing court is to focus on the statutory language and follow Congress's instructions. If, after applying all the traditional tools of statutory interpretation, there is a residual ambiguity on the precise question at issue, and only if there is such residual ambiguity, then the court may consider the reasonableness of the agency's view. Lower courts often do not do this. AHA is simply a reminder that they absolutely should. Well, that's really all I got for you guys today. Um, I will probably be doing another video at some point breaking down uh, Justice Gorsuch's concurrent in West Virginia v. EPA and probably looking at Elena Kagan's dissent too because there was some interesting stuff in there. So I, I'll, I'll probably do a video about that. I just wanted to get these two summaries out here real quick to you guys. Also, I've got some other videos I am working on uh, about how the Bruin case has begun to already have a serious impact on any number of federal gun control cases, uh, including ones that I have covered on this channel in the past, such as Young versus Hawaii, uh, as well as a video uh, about a great question I got from a new viewer about how we could go about getting rid of the legal fiction of substantive due process which is my wording, not theirs, uh, getting rid of the legal fiction of substantive due process by returning to an original public meaning interpretation of the Article 4 and 14th Amendment Privileges and Immunities Clause as a means of protecting both enumerated and unenumerated rights. And moreover, real quick, I know there is someone out there who has been very patiently waiting for a very long time for a video uh, on my relating the fall of the Roman Republic following the Second Punic War to modern American authoritarianism. Uh, So if you happen to be listening to this episode, I promise I haven't forgotten about you. Uh, And I will be putting that out as soon as this hectic schedule 
of following the current Supreme Court session uh, finally slows down. So if you want to make sure you catch all of those uh, upcoming videos that I've just talked about, uh, make sure to subscribe to the channel. And uh, the court has dropped several other cases this session that I haven't really planned on covering, but if there is any uh, case out there that any of you guys would be interested in getting a breakdown on, breakdown on that I haven't yet covered on the channel, uh, let me know in the comments or send me an email to legalese at gmx.us. Uh, and I would probably be happy to cover that case for you here. So, yeah, anyways, uh, until next time, you know, uh, subscribe to the channel, uh, leave a comment, let me know what you think. I really do always love hearing from you guys in uh, the comments, so please do that. And then uh, let me know what you thought of the video by hitting that little thumbsy upy button or uh, hitting the little thumbsy downy button down there, whichever one you feel like. So, anyways, until next time, I have been Bob for Legalese talking about Chevron deference, and of course, as always, Cartago de Lenda Est. Fucker, got a trunk full of amps, brother.